Welcome to Discovery and Inspiration, a podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Robert Newman, President and Director of the Center and your host for this episode. In the United States, if you happen to be born African-American, research indicates that you're far more likely to get sick than someone who's white. You're more likely to suffer from severe forms of illness, and your life expectancy will be shorter regardless of your age, education, or socioeconomic condition. Poor health outcomes for African-Americans result from a number of factors, but underlying many of them is the persistence of racial bias. Our guest today is Yolanda Wilson, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Howard University. This year, as a fellow at the National Humanities Center, Yolanda's been working on a book addressing racial bias in healthcare, focusing particularly on issues surrounding the pursuit of social justice in the arena of the care African-Americans receive as they approach the end of life. So welcome, Yolanda. Hi, thank you for having me, Robert. Sure. So statistics tell us, of course, that African-Americans are sicker and die younger than whites, but we normally account for that by controlling for socioeconomic status, for access to health insurance or lack thereof, and also lifestyle choices. But you're arguing that there are underlying factors to all of this. Could you elaborate for us? Well, so it's interesting because I think for years that was kind of the standard line of argument in a lot of circles that, oh, if Black people just had better access to health care or if Black people were just insured, we would see these disparities go away. And what we're finding as more Black people have entered the middle class in the last 30 years is that these disparities persist. And when you look within class, they're worse at the upper end. So in other words, upper middle class Black people actually have a wider gap between their health status and health outcomes versus upper middle class white people. And so I think we have to look at racial bias and racism as factors in the cause of these persisting disparities. It's not just access to health care, or it's not just having insurance or money or access to better food. So one of the limitations that the assumptions of traditional liberalism have when addressing end-of-life issues from your perspective? So among the kind of background assumptions underlying liberalism are this focus on individuals, individual choices, uh, assumptions about kind of rough equality between people. And I think those are the two that I find most telling in terms of how to address health disparities and health outcomes, right? I mean, if, you, if you're starting from a premise that society is roughly equal and that people all have similar choices and similar, a similar range of choices to choose from, then the decisions that one makes or how one prioritizes healthcare spending, for example, or what things constitute healthcare spending are gonna look very different than if you think that we're starting from a condition of gross inequality and needing to move from there, needing to rectify inequality before making other kinds of decisions about healthcare resource allocation. 
So your project talks about uh, what you term ideal theory versus non-ideal theory. Could you unpack those terms for us? Yeah, so ideal theory is, I guess, kind of going back to the previous question, ideal theory is the kind of underlying assumption of liberalism that we're starting from a system of rough equality, that people have similar choices available to them, that what we need to do is just tweak the system, right? That these kind of deviations, that racism, for example, would be a deviation from the norm and not the norm itself. Non-ideal theory addresses the reality of how things actually are on the ground. And so racism isn't, say, a deviation from, but it is actually what we're living with and what we need to address and think about in order to make choices about how the state should function, how the state should look. So you're essentially emphasizing the non-ideal. So what kind of interventions do you see as necessary to give us the broader perspective that you're arguing for? Well, it's interesting that in the last few years, one conversation that I've seen a lot more spilling into more popular media is a conversation about reparations, right? What does it look like to well, you can't undo, but what does it look like to address a history of injustice? And reparations are presented as one possibility, right? So if the economics are in order, if we make decisions that control for or make up for centuries of unjust housing policy, for example, that means that Black properties or properties in neighborhoods that are perceived as Black are devalued. What does that look like for building wealth and for being able to have access to health care and making health decisions? There's been a lot of discussion in recent years about implicit bias, and I do think that it's important to address implicit bias. However, I also think that sometimes implicit bias can be a little bit of a cop-out. In other words, if we think that people have these biases and somehow we can't help them, then it can be tempting to just throw up one's hands and say, oh my gosh, I don't know what we can do. We, we just have to live with this. I do think that there are possible ways to address implicit bias. And so I think that that has to be on the table. But I also think that there have to be consequences for biased policy, even if policies on the face of it are neutral, if they have disproportionate impact. I think that there needs to be kind of serious consideration and serious undertaking of, of disparate impact. And I know that the courts have moved away from disparate impact thinking in the last 25 years or so, but I think that some interesting headway towards creating a more just society came about in taking that seriously, taking that kind of reasoning seriously. That even if on the face of it, one is not intending to be biased or intending to be racist, the fact that when you see these things play out, the actual numbers reveal that some people carry a disproportionate burden as a result of those policies. And I think that you have to rethink them. I mean, I think we're seeing that now with this coronavirus. Oh my gosh. I mean, what a time to be working on a book. I think I'm going to write a very different book than I thought I was going to write just by virtue of, of what's happening now. But one thing that we are seeing, and I think it is good to see these conversations being brought to the forefront. I think coronavirus is showing that. Um, the disproportionate deaths that Black people are disproportionately dying 
Why an analytic philosopher addressing end-of-life issues? What perspectives might an analytic philosopher bring that might be lacking from uh, the perspective of an epidemiologist, say? So I don't know if I would say lacking. I don't know if that's the word that I would want to use, but certainly the kind of conceptual clarity, right? The interesting concepts and definitions, which some people think is just kind of hair splitting. I think that they can be very important and incredibly useful in thinking about end of life care and what that looks like. I I am trained as an analytic philosopher. I do social and political philosophy. That's kind of my official thing. Um, Although I've moved into thinking about bioethics from that perspective. I also think that the discipline of philosophy as a whole could think about race more, um, think about it as central instead of something that people do on the side. And so the way that I approach the work philosophically is not only by reading epidemiologists, I do actually read literature from epidemiology and public health and also medical sociology. I mean, I think that they have some interesting interesting things to say precisely to get inside of the questions that I'm finding interesting that I don't see philosophers addressing in the way that I'd like to see them addressed. I want to pick up on something you just said. The field of bioethics, which is a relatively recently emerging field, I think you rightly state that there's a kind of prevalence of of whiteness theory and whiteness perspective behind bioethics. And why do you think that is? And are you seeking to counter that head on? Well, I mean, I think a lot of academia is very white. And that's not in itself a bad thing. But I I do think that there are kind of modes of how one has an academic career that don't always lend themselves to scholars who are not white and or from middle class backgrounds coming in and being successful. When I was thinking about becoming an academic, I was strongly encouraged to live the life of the mind. You know, that's what we like to say. Oh, we live the life of the mind. But I think structurally, You know, even going to graduate school is something that requires a certain amount of leisure isn't quite the word that I want to use, but a kind of flexibility to not work for five or six years or seven years and then maybe have a job at the end of it. That's something that's a gamble that you can't necessarily take if you're working class, for example. Um, That's a gamble that your family may not want you to take, even if you're not working class, if you're black or Latino or right. I mean, it, it. there are things that seem to be surer bets, like going to med school or going to law school. And so even kind of the culture of academia isn't always as welcoming to thinking about race. And I think that's because academia kind of mirrors who's in it. And so I think that that is changing, and I'm happy to see that that's changing. But I think that it also reflects whose work is read, whose work is cited, who even gets to produce work, what condition, the conditions under which people produce work. I mean, I just saw an article this morning that during this period where many people are staying home, that journal editors are finding that men are submitting articles like mad right now. Men are being, you know, quite productive right now and, and women are not. And so what is that going to look like when you're making decisions about merit pay or promotion or tenure? And I think that there is perhaps an assumption that when you're home, what else are you doing? Of course, you have all this free time to write now. Why why haven't you written six articles (laughs) without a recognition? You know, there's a chapter in my book on caregiving and what that looks like for career. 
you know, I think there's not quite the recognition that not everyone's life looks the same. And so the costs of going into academia look different for people, but also the rewards coming out on the other side can be different. I want to kind of take that question from the academic field perspective, and I want to kind of drive it home and more personally with you. So I want you to talk a bit about Albany, Georgia, uh, where we see, of course, a disproportionate effect of the COVID-19 virus uh, these days. And of course, this is where you come from, and it's your home. And I'd like you to talk a bit about how that example of Albany, which is, I'm sure, very powerfully personal to you, uh, reinforces what you're trying to do in this project. You know, this book already, in some ways, felt very personal to me. Coming from a community of African-American people and watching people die left and right and watching my own family's various states of health and unhealth kind of made me interested in some of these questions, kind of drove my interest in some of these questions initially. And then this pandemic hit and we started seeing the numbers. And then lo and behold, my hometown, like, I mean, I'm just... How is my hometown of 70, 75-ish thousand people one of the worst places in the world per capita, right? I mean, I think there were some earlier numbers. I don't know what the most recent numbers look like, but in terms of deaths per capita, there was Wuhan, China, Lombardy, Italy, and Albany, Georgia. Like, those are the top three places in the world. My little corner of, of Georgia, of Southwest Georgia, you know, I know people who are sick. I know people who have died. You know, when you had to close the center earlier, when you made the decision, and it was the right decision, you know, I, I, I think I was in a little bit of denial for a minute, um, but, but, I, but I know it was the right decision to close the center. But one of the things that I struggled with was, okay, well, now I'm just sitting here in Durham. What do I do? Do I move back to my home in D.C.? Do I go home and check on my mom in Georgia? Even what does that look like to go down to Albany? Do I go down to Albany and bring her back to Durham with me? Do I go down to Albany and we go to DC together? Do, you know, because my initial thought was, I can't leave my mother in this. And as we talked and talked and talked, she said, you don't need to come down here. That's the last thing you need to do is come down here. And so, you know, she and I talk every day. I check in on her. But it is, it is surreal to witness it, to tweet about it, to see the New York Times talking about Albany, Georgia, to see the Washington Post, to see the independent UK talking about my little hometown and to talk about people who are dying and to know that I know some of those people who are dying. This is not just abstract for me. What's interesting is that, you know, we know through tracing that the virus hit Albany very hard because someone came into town to attend a funeral. But but, but what's interesting is that the person who initially presented at Phoebe Putney Hospital, which is the one hospital in town, presented with the kind of nonspecific symptoms that a lot of people are presenting with who've turned out to be COVID positive and who went on to later die even. And that person had a lot of other chronic conditions. And so it didn't spark the red flag, right? This person comes in with kind of respiratory difficulties. Okay, we give this person oxygen. And given their health history, they were treated with with care. And, you know, at that time, there were zero known cases in town. And it wasn't until that person went to Atlanta and later on was admitted to the hospital and the Atlanta hospital called back to Albany to say, hey, that person was COVID positive. Well, what does that mean for the question that you're asking? 
the question that you're asking now and also kind of how you introduced our our conversation was around health disparities and underlying health conditions. And I think that sometimes one way that this has had disproportionate impact is that sometimes these underlying health conditions have masked the way that COVID has presented itself. And particularly in spaces where it hasn't yet hit hard, we'll probably see a little bit more of that. As the pandemic has just grown and gotten worse, I think people are much more aware now and and know what to look for. But I I do think that that's another way that these kind of these health inequities are manifesting themselves. Right. There's there's the bias where people aren't getting tested and aren't being taken seriously. But I think also this other kind of thing that happened, at least with that first case in Albany. Thank you for delving into that. I, I know difficult and very personal and very powerful example. We, of course, hope that you and your family stay well. Thank you very much, Yolanda Wilson, for joining us. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for tuning in. I'm Robert Newman. Please join us again for the next episode of Discovery and Inspiration for the National Humanities Center. 